Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Whole PTSD. Uh, for today's episode, we have our guest, Brian. I uh, want to warn you, this one's a little bit longer than usual, but I listened to it, man, four or five times, and I just didn't want to edit anything out. Uh, and I just think it's super important for our listeners to uh, take it all in. So, Brian, he's a Green Beret combat medic. He's in Vietnam and Afghanistan. Yes, he was in Vietnam and Afghanistan. I did say that correctly. He decided to enlist after 9-11. He's also retired Fresno PD, and somehow Brian's found a way to be a real estate agent and kind of sprinkle that in here and there between uh, being a cop and being in the military. And so Brian's just one of those guys who just really genuinely loves his country. He's a true warrior, and he really puts the service and service member. So hope you guys enjoy. Oh, but before that, remember to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify by searching Whole PTSD, and remember to follow us on social media at PTSD underscore Whole. Brian Bray, we're up and running. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My honor. And so uh, since we've started the show, like I was telling you before we started recording, we, uh, we've we had a lot of requests to have someone from the Vietnam War. And um, I think that just comes from it being such a historic war and there being a lot of controversy about it. So really excited to have you on the show. Uh, why don't we get started with where you're from? Okay. Um, I was born in Sioux City, Michigan, up by where the Great Lakes connect. <clears throat> my mom and dad were Salvation Army ministers. I was the youngest of four boys. They moved to California to be by my el- my grandmother, who had been blind the last 40 years of her life. So I grew up in Garden Grove, went to Santa Ana College for two years, joined the Army in 1967, um, completed my first tour in 70, and I stayed in the reserves till about 1980. Then when I got back in 1970 from active duty, I became a Santa Ana police officer, then in 1994, I came up to join the Fresno Police Department, retired in 11, and uh, they brought me back for about 18 months to register sex offenders, and I couldn't stand it, and so no, I'm definitely not there anymore. And what's the path that led you to uh, joining the Army and, and going to war? Really interesting. Um, I was not a stellar student, and it was inevitable I would probably be drafted. I thought, well, if I sign up for the Army, I'll get a, cho- a job of my choice. And I was a pretty good trumpet player all through school, grade school, high school, to college. So I tested out at Fort MacArthur, San Pedro, and got a guaranteed enlistment for three years to be in their band playing trumpet. Four weeks into my basic training, a Green Beret came. Now, you remember the Vietnam War was really expanding in 1967. They didn't have enough special forces, and for the first time, they were going to recruit about 400 and test us. So they tested 10,000 basic training students across the nation. I was one of the 400 accepted into that program. Probably less than 100 of it finished the entire program. Wow. That's quite impressive. And so where do you go from there? Do you go straight to war? How does that work? Well, actually, you you train for 47 weeks in medical training. You, You have... A basic medical training, advanced medical training, you have surgical, burn, pharmacy, veterinary even, uh, dentistry. We had to do 12 autopsies, work 12 weeks in an emergency room taking care of any shooting accident or whatever with one doctor and four Green Beret medics. And then we had a dog lab, which you have to have operations on an animal before humans. And then we got shipped to Vietnam. So I was in the Army training for a full year and a half before I was ever deployed to combat. Unlike a lot of regular medics had an eight or 10-week course. Ours was so much more extensive. And when you're training for this war, it was I'm sure it was, a, it was a highly talked about war at the time. What's the thought process as you're training and preparing to actually go overseas? Well, it was really gearing up. Um, in 1969, when I went over there in February, we had the most of, of the over like 550,000 total troops deployed. And that year, we probably lost more per week and per wound, anywhere from two to 300 a week and four to 500 wounded every single week. 
So it was a significant uh, impact. And I was um, attached down to the 9th Infantry Division, the Mekong Delta. They're so decimated. decimated was, their average medic lasted five to six weeks. So they attached me down there, and we were the first air assault war. And uh, we would get on the slicks at 6 in the morning, the helicopters take off, and you do three to five uh, search and destroy missions. As you're coming in, they'd have white smoke if it was a cool LZ landing zone or red smoke if it was hot, meaning you're getting shot at. Half the time with the white ones, you're getting shot at. Then at night, every night, you'd be out in the field for three weeks back at base camp, three days. You would set up ambush from 6 at night till 6 in the morning. So from 6 to 10, you rested anyone out. But from 10 at night to 6 in the morning, it was an open fire zone. They'd fire at us. We'd fire it at them. So we had over 400 missions by the time I got blown up August 17th of 1969. And I spent three and a half months in four different hospitals. And um, it was really a significant uh, volume of activity. The 9th Infantry Division had 100% casualties, meaning either killed or wounded over every five months. By the end of 1969 to the very beginning of 1970, there's so few left, they had to attach them to the 25th Infantry just a little bit above us. So then that, that kind of ended the 9th Infantry Division. But it was just really bad. And, and why, people ask, I said, well, in May, Nixon wanted to have a, a Vietnamization. So he wanted 25% of all of our patrols to be Vietnam soldiers to teach them, develop them, and whatever. But they also took out the 1st and 2nd Brigades of 5,000 each, 10,000 troops from the Mekong Delta, sent them to Hawaii and left the 3rd Brigade, which I was attached to. So imagine one-third of the American soldiers fighting the same amount of the enemy or more. And it was extremely active uh, at a theater of, of activity. Hmm. Now, uh, you just came back from Vietnam from a trip with a few other guys. Why don't you talk about that a little bit before we get into much sure. else? Sure. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, being a combat medic, you never can save everyone. So for years and years and years and years, I've always had tons of problems and nightmares and issues of those who I could not save. <clears throat> but a few of my buddies decided, let's make our 50th reunion, it's hard to believe, 1969 to uh, 2019, to go back and honor these soldiers that we lost. So I came up with this idea of getting a hatchet, which the American Indians, bef hundreds of years before the Europeans came to America, if they were going to have a truce, the tribe would... First, let their POWs go. Then they would bury this mutual hatchet, and that was better than any written document. So I engraved those men's names that we lost in that July 3rd to July 4th battle on this and put little insignias on it. And we took that to Vietnam with a mission to heal and honor. And we went to the very battlefield. We still have the 1969 artillery maps from where they called in 1,200 strikes of artillery, the guy that was embedded with us around the enemy around us. Um, two days later... Out of the 20 of us that ran into 500 of the North Vietnamese regulars, 11 of us came out, and we killed over 300 of them, and the rest had dissipated with all the other support. So this burying the hatchet was a very significant, sentimental honor of these men we lost. And also, I, I did cry. I looked at these other fellows. I said, guys, we couldn't save them all. We wanted to, but I said, we can all look at each other and know we did the very best we possibly could, and we could look in the mirror and feel that. We went back to the hotel. We, we toasted our, our lost soldiers, and... It was an amazing uh, experience. Hmm. Um, being a combat med medic, I, I imagine it might be a little more heightened. Uh, most first responders and military people have this this catch up with trying to save more people. What's that like for you, and how did you overcome that that kind of thought process, that guilt of not saving others? It was really, really hard. Um, you'd be in combat. My, my very first battle, I had eight guys blown up simultaneously. And what had happened, we were in such dense jungle, the Mekong jungle was the forest, the, the forecourt down there and below, that, that's where all the swamps were and everything. They brought the helicopter gunship, shot eight rockets, and when it did, it came right into our position. 
I can still see my mind in slow motion. These guys blowing up in the air, mud, palm fronds, and everything coming down. I'm running around triaging, grabbing guys. You grab here, you grab there. And then you just do the very, very best you can. Sometimes you have to clear the jungle to get the helicopter medevacs in to dust them off to medical treatment. So every time you lost somebody that you could not save, it got very, very frustrating. You have to understand, it doesn't sound like much, but in the late 60s, it was a quarter million dollars of medical training I'd received, the best in the possible world. I thought I could save everybody. I wasn't prepared for that. I remember going back to base camp, tears streaming down my face, sitting down with the colonel, the doctor in charge of base camp, and said to him, Sir, I said, I lost three more today, and I just, I just, I'm so frustrated. He came and put his arm around me. He said, Brian, he said, we could have an operating table right there, and they're so blown up, they're so bad, we couldn't save them because you have to have more than a hamburger to work with. It didn't save anybody, but it started me realizing, yeah, you, you can't save them. I don't care how well trained you are, how equipped you are, how much surgery you've had. You, you were by yourself. You're trying to do all you can. And uh, even though our commanders might write letters, I wrote every single family a letter of the men that were killed or blown up under my tutelage, and I definitely uh, carried that with me through my life, the loss of those guys. Um, I imagine there's probably a sense of closure after bearing that hatchet, right? It really was. It's something, I'll be honest with you, it's still a communist country, and I don't like communism. I've seen terrorism from there to gangs when I was a police officer. I've actually been to Iraq twice and Afghanistan once on some police military missions. When you see terrorism and terrible things of that nature, you don't want to go back to that country at all. It's still under a communist rule. But my friend said, well, some other guys had gone. <clears throat> it wasn't so bad. We got there. Here's Saigon, what they call Ho Chi Minh City. Now, I still call it Saigon. 13 million people, 7 million motorbikes. I mean, thriving. Uh, everybody's doing things. It's been two generations. They were actually nice. We had a little patch we made that talked about the 50th anniversary of this infantry unit. It's a battle. I had three different Vietnamese come up and thank me and shake my hand. I was absolutely amazed. And so um, that was a difficult part. Going to the battlefield, we had... Um, a driver drive us about 44 miles south of Saigon, and he was lost the last five miles. He asked a motorcyclist, could you help me find this place? He said, yeah, leave the van with the guys, jump on my bike, I'll show you where it is and bring you back, which he did. When unbeknownst to us, the place we were going to near the battlefield was his grandpa who built IEDs and bombs blown up Americans, and he thought we were there to kill his grandpa. Mm -hmm. So by the time we got there, they also called in three communist soldiers who confronted us, didn't want us going on the battlefield, and we said, look, we're just here to pray for these men. So we left, and days later we went around the complete opposite side with a different driver, not telling anybody. I told that guy we're going to take pictures of butterflies. Then marched on in to do our, our mission and bury this this hatchet. What's that like with the 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 kind of conflict with the communist police? Are they really upset at you guys? How does that work? They weren't upset, out? but they were really ragging on the driver. They took his ID, took a picture of the cell phone, said we'll be coming to the hotel to interrogate you in the next couple of days, and so. You know, they didn't get my name, thank God, and were my buddies. And, and the very next day, my wife had called and said, do you think you should come home right now? I said, no, I'm not done with this mission. We have to do this. So uh, the next time we did it, it was kind of ironic because we had a, the guy stop. We went way over this wooden bridge. We hiked through the jungle in this hot humidity, and we're digging in the roots and mud. And there's snakes and crap around, and we, we got it done. And then as we're walking out, this guy comes up from his hooch and says, who are you? Where are you from? And I said, I'm from California. My friend says, Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the heck out of there, jumped in the car, and got the driver to take us out, and we didn't get caught the second time. But it was uh, it was important to us to do this. What's it like after so many years to be back in the land that you fought a war in? You know, as I landed, you could probably hear a pin drop next to me. I'm looking out that window. I'm looking at the runway because Thompson Airport was the 
busiest airport in the world at that time, Chicago being the next busiest, but a flight took off every 28 to 35 seconds. So you can imagine the volume of activity. Well, that was all added on and rebuilt. I still saw some of the concrete blast areas where they would park planes and all that from the war, but it was all new terminal. We got there. We had made arrangements to get a driver to take us to our hotel. You're driving in the city and you're seeing two, three, four, and five people on a motorbike, the families and the hustle and bustle, little shops. You could definitely say, wow, we are not at war anymore. We, we are at peace. And so I did get to go see the third field hospital when I got blown up is where they flew me in. I was on the Cambodian border on a mission and, and, and an IED a command detonated with a guy w w knew we'd bunch up in the jungle. I was in front of it. The guy was on top of it, lost a leg. It blew me forward about 25 feet. The kid behind him got hit in the left eye, and the fourth kid got hit in the arm. But he got four of us as he ran. They, they killed him. But definitely, when I went into that hospital, I'm laying there all bloody in the medevac. As I'm coming in, there's a horse track, and the stands are full of people, and there's horse races going on. And I'm going, oh, my God, we're fighting this war, and these people are at the horse. It was really opposite. Wow. But that same building's there. It's now a war museum. I saw the same double stainless steel glass doors in the back where they brought us in and hosed us down and started our surgeries. It was just uh, amazing. And that horse track is still there. Wow. <laughs> I saw it. What's it like? What's what's your mind like after being blown up as you're getting transported to the hospital and whatnot? Well, two things. My legs were paralyzed for about 18 hours. I got hit in, in the back, and thank God I had a medical backpack on. It took a lot of the impact and blast. I still get it peppered around my shoulders. And just below my belt, right by my spine, there's a chunk of metal. looks like a 38 slug that hit, and they didn't take it off for fear it cut like accessory nurse to my legs. So as we went in, they're cutting your clothes off. They have this whole operation. They're hosing you off with fluids. They take you through these strips of clear plastic into this air-conditioned emergency room. They take you into the surgical room. They're doing the surgeries on you. I had to have metal stitches to close up my back, which I said, don't do it yet because they closed it too soon, and I ended up getting gangrene. Went from there to Cameron Bay. I was not there, but maybe $40 when it got attacked. In fact, one of the nurses killed in Cameron Bay was killed that night, and one of those little traders, when the satchel charges came in and attacked us. I had been a patient, no weapon, nothing I could do, so I had to lay down between two Quonset huts and throw dirt over me just to watch everybody run back and forth fighting and shooting, and that also helped my infections get worse. So they had to ship me to Japan for a couple more surgeries, and then um, about three and a half months later, they shipped me home for a 30-day convalescent leave to go back to my last eight months of my three-year um, tour to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That's where the uh, special forces are. But it was just an unbelievable experience. I'm in the hospital, and uh, because I was a medic and really well-trained, I'll be honest with you, it was wonderful, amazing training. I made sure all my men took their malaria pills. You could take this one big orange pill once a week or a little white one daily. I took both. So in the hospital, a lot of guys that hadn't, they're having chills and fevers and their wounds and all this mess, and it was just unbelievable. And so um, it was both a relief but a sadness because I was losing. Uh, I was not with my guys to help them, and I, here I am hurt. So it was it was always tough, but um, it took me 33 years to go to my first reunion. Finally, the guys found me, and we, we met up. And I call them short but intense friendships. And when I met with these guys, um, there was a group of 66. 60 of them had purple hearts, and some of them multiple. And no one would let me drink, and I don't drink much. But I said, Doc, your money's no good here. And they'd buy me drinks. I said, well, I wish I was a big drinker. But anyway, <laughs> it was an amazing to see these guys. It's like I just saw them a couple of years ago. And I'd been activated at age 53 for 9-11 for 13 months. So in the, in the, they were having the 1st of April a reunion. 
And I asked my, I was um, taken to Fort Lewis, Washington for six weeks of training. Then they took me down to Fort Hunter Liggett to open up a medical clinic to treat all the people that came in there. We had a PA, three other medics and myself, and we treated 1,800 soldiers, sailors, Marines, whoever got sick or injured, whatever there. My colonel gave me a four-day pass. I went to Atlanta. I was able to meet up with these guys. I was the only one still in uniform. And um, then uh, it was just an amazing experience to see these guys I thought about. I remember one soldier that got blown up that on the July 3rd and his leg got broken, a femur. I had to get a young trooper that had only been in the country two weeks to get me some sticks so I could do the leg. If you don't imagine getting shot and a bone's broken and the muscles contract and those bones start cutting things. So you have to put traction on that leg. So here I am trying to get in the middle of combat shooting, dragging this guy out of the way. He's got other wounds. And this kid brings back these two sticks. He's hysterical. Like three or four minutes later, I said, what's going on? Teddy Kennedy was his name. And Teddy says, man, I only cut the bottoms. The enemy machine guns cut off the tops. So we get the guy. As we tried to put him on the chopper, we had to drop him because three of the enemy came up uh, from a 50 B-52 bomb crater we had used as a little base camp. And they came over the berm. We had to kill them. Then we said, put him on the chopper. We only had glass IVs in those days. As I hung the glass IV up, I pulled my hand, it wasn't even four inches away, and 27 rounds had hit that helicopter, according to my friend who had counted the holes when they landed, and it shattered that glass over he and I. We jumped back down. He saw me and the lieutenant, that Tom Rodriguez, that when I went with me, fighting and all this enemy coming. He saw me five months later at Fort uh, Bragg, North Carolina. I said, you're still alive. <laughs> he said, I thought for sure you were dead. And so to meet with these guys after all those years, and about every five years now, we've had a chance to get together with special, but only three were healthy enough to do this 50-year reunion. And then we had a local uh, fellow that w- was in the Iraq War, but he was also Special Forces Weapons. I was medical. He went with us. My wife was laughing. You know, we're 71 to 75 years old. He's only 60, so you need a younger guy. He did dig with a little entrenching tool we bought that hole in the middle of that jungle through the roots and mud to bury that hatchet for us. So it was really neat that Robert went along, Robert Espinosa. Wow. So just to kind of go back, you enlisted again after 9-11, after the whole Vietnam War. Yeah, well, what <laughs> happened, and I stayed in the reserves after Vietnam. You had to have, um, if you were three years active duty, you had to have three years ready reserve. And then I went in the National Guard for one year. Well, all we were doing was going to Fort Irwin, uh, with mechanical vehicles like Bradley's, whatever, not in those days, they're APCs, but anyway, they were, all you do is spend all Sunday cleaning dirt and dust off. I got sick of it. Buddy of mine was in the Coast Guard Reserve, so I joined that for quite a few years. I joined that from 75, 74 through uh, 80. And so I went to Long Beach and, and San Pedro and did BOSDET, Boating and Safety Detail, and Hazardous Cargo Inspections. Well, then in 1996, I was in the in the Fresno Police Department. They sent me to the National Interagency Counter Drug Institute, and they said, "Well, why don't you? You've got 13 years service under your belt. Why don't you finish the last seven years? You'll get your 20-year letter." I said, "Well, that's okay. I'm 49 years old. Went back in, and the medic that gave me my physical said, "Man, I've never had anybody your age come back in." <laughs> well, who would have known? Just a matter of a few years later, 9/11 would have happened and be activated for 13 months. So um, I was a senior medic of 502 men in the first 185th Infantry. And so we had um, been spread out at nine different locations throughout the western United States. Mine was Fort Hunter Liggett. Um, We had a a closed 
a troop, they called a TMC, a troop medical clinic, about 10,000 square foot facility had been closed for five years. We had to clean it. it somebody waxed over a mouse three times. We were scraping it off with putty knives. It took us a week to get it clean, and then we treated 1,800 soldiers, saved Marines. Whoever got sick or injured, we lost one who got burned to death in a vehicle accident. I couldn't save him. But everybody else, we did a pretty good job. We were there. I came back, and I finished my military in, in 06, 2006, and then I finished my police work in 2011. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting to me that a, a, a combat a combat medic, um, not only are you saving lives and you're responsible for, for your men, but you're also at times having to, to be a warrior and, and oh, use yes. weapons and whatnot. Um, I mean, geez, we're only 19 minutes in this interview, and, and you've shared the most out of anybody on that's been on this show. How do you find a way to get through life after being in the war, after seeing so many tragic Re- things? Really a good question. Um, remember I mentioned my mom and dad were Salvation Army ministers. My dad was a, a World War II pilot, flew P-40s, P-51s, and he was like almost one of the first top gun guys. They wouldn't let him go to combat. He's begging and begging and begging. They kept him as a f- flight instructor. And then one of his last jobs was to take guys that had been burned up and hurt to try to check flight them to see if they were capable of flying. Finally, the last week of the war, he got orders, and then it stopped. So he never got to fly in combat, but he got a job as a commercial pilot. The very first week he's out of the Army Air Corps, he went to visit a guy at a foundry, and a piece of steel shot across the room in his left eye and took it out. Well, you can't fly if you, you have no depth procession. My mom was a Salvation Army minister, so my dad went to the theological seminary. He became one. They gave us a real foundation of religion and Christianity. I even carried the same little Bible in my left breast pocket my father carried all through World War II that my mother had given him. So I did have a foundation there, but it was still hard. I was one. I think there's two types of PTSD people. There's the type that almost get catatonic and can't function, and then there's what I call the functioning PTSD, which is what I was. I never was into drugs or the alcohol. I was bucking up, trying to do the best I could. But definitely, um, that's the religion, I think, is what helped carry me through all, all my times in my life. Seeing so many tragic things, having people shoot at you, having to shoot people, um, I'm sure you've, you've had some loss of life in your hands. Did your faith ever waver at all? No. In, in, in fact, if anything, it became stronger only because I, that was my my only strength. It was my belief in God. You know, they say in the Bible, whether people believe it or not, but they say in the Bible that faith, the green of a tiny mustard seed can move mm-hmm. mountains. And I think that is truly what carried me through the darkest, darkest times of my life. And so um, that I, I, I kept with me. I didn't give up on my religion. That's awesome. That July 3rd, 4th battle, let's talk about that. What 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 went down that those two days? Well, what happened was we were on a recon, and supposedly there was a Viet Cong unit out in the area. So they sent 20 of us at uh, early in the morning, about 6 in the morning. We got to this part of the jungle about 10 o'clock and about 10.15. We're in a drizzly, light drizzly rain, and we're seeing footprints go in, even water flowing in the footprints. So, you know, we're like right on top of them, and all of a sudden, boom, all hell broke loose. Machine guns from the enemies, everything's going on. And I had three guys hit immediately right around me. Um, one guy up on my upper left, and he was no more than 80 feet to my left. His name was Barry Osborne. <clears throat> he got shot and was laying on his back and just kept getting riddled with rounds. Another guy about maybe... 100 feet to my right named Dedon, Charles Dedon. He was a staff sergeant. He got shot. And then beyond him was Floyd. And he was an American Indian. And he had been shot. So I'm trying to, I have just one guy with me. Everybody's all separated. I mean, we're all just totally separated because we were ambushed. We counter ambushed. We're all firing back. Thank God we must, must have killed their leaders accidentally because they were discombobulated. And Tom Rodriguez, one of the artillery guys, was working his way around and 
I gave him cover and he took out a machine gun nest on the upper left. Imagine like 11 o'clock as you're looking forward. And then as I'm trying to get to Osborne, I'm firing and I have another kid behind a mud thing about the size of this little coffee table, about three feet high, four and a half feet wide. And that we were using as a fighting position. But every time I tried to get to Osborne, I kept getting hit in my backpack. I actually received eight rounds in my, my medical pack. and I couldn't get to him twice. I kept going back and forth. Finally, I said, look, you got to cover me. i got to get to Deedon. I get over to Deedon, and he is all shot up in the face. It was so terrible. There's a term t- called a cricothyroid artery. So imagine if you feel your Adam's apple just below that. You make an incision, not down there like a trachea, but you make an incision. Just blood just poured out. This guy had virtually drowned in his own blood. Then I worked my way over to uh, Floyd, and he was on his knees. He was an M60 gunner, and his, his ammo guy was separated from him. And he had been shot in the right arm. And his left hand was in the crisscross. You know, you have the machine guns, ammo uh, cross. Uh, it was there. He was on his knees, dead. He had been shot right in the head and in the chest and in the arm. There was nothing I could do to save him. So I worked my way back to this other kid. He and I are, are fighting. And finally, it's getting to the point where we're down to not much ammo. We used our last grenade. And jungle isn't like all jungle. You have clumps of jungle the size of a football field, open area, more jungle, well, behind us, about 120 yards back, about the size of a football stadium, was another clump of jungle, and we are getting friendly fire from back there helping. And this guy screamed, Doc, Doc, is that you? I said, yes. I said, we're being flanked. I said, we've got to move, or, or I need you to play a field of fire. So they, they did. But just before that, this is a weirder story. I'm, I'm telling Preston, this young guy next to me, I said, do you believe in God? He goes, yeah. He says, well, we may not make it, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you protection. You're going to serpentine over there and jump into that jungle and give me fire to try to get to you. I said, here's a little morphine threat, like a little miniature tube of toothpaste with a needle. You get shot. You poke yourself in the thigh. You bury yourself in the mud and leaves and you hide. But I said, if you don't, you just keep giving me fire. So just before we did that, I said, do you believe in God? He goes, hell yeah. I said, let's pray. And I said, oh, God, God, please, please help us. All of a sudden, it stopped drizzling. I'm not exaggerating. These clouds kind of opened. Some sunlight came on. And that's when those guys started screaming from behind us to give us support. It was like, ah, stills make me, make me cry today. But anyway, <clears throat> we repositioned ourselves with those guys, caught up around. And like you say, you're fighting the whole time, too. And a lot of times when I'm fighting, I had uh, authority, as an officer did, to carry a 45 and an M16. Sometimes I have to sling the M16. And with the 45, I'd lay it on my patient's soldier's chest, and I'd have to pick it up and shoot back or drag him. And that was my, my weapon. So all the time in combat, you're fighting, you're in support, you're doing the, the ambush patrols at night or whatever else. But you also have to make sure that your men are, are taken care of. And you know, they very affectionately call you Doc when you're a medic around base camp. Everybody's Doc. I'm still Brian Doc Burry to these guys. But when they get shot, they all scream medic. You know, that's the thing. Or somebody needs a medic, you know, you got to go. So that was... a. Uh, a real challenge to be both a soldier and then a medic. And I wasn't a regular medic because of my Green Beret training and all that. Everybody wanted to be around me. It was the weirdest thing. He said, Doc, I want to be by you in case we get shot up. And so it was just a very special relationship. And every day I'd see these guys and I'd have to give them salt pills because we were just sweating. The humidity was in the high 90s, 110 degrees. You're just perspiring all day. You're drinking two-quart canteens and hardly peeing. You're just sweating out everything. But I made sure they'd take their salt pills or their malaria pills. They said, yeah, we saw you hanging around. It's just watching us talk to make sure you took our medicine, didn't you? So it was kind of cute. But one kind of ruthless thing I did is they give you this little three-pack of Marlboro's or Winston cigarettes and your C-rations. Those were canned. We didn't have 
have MREs in those days. So I'd save them up because if we were out in the field for like three weeks, that last week, those guys were getting desperate for cigarettes. I'd get their fruit cocktail, their chocolate, their peanut butter jam. I could get everything trade for those cigarettes. <laughs> you were ruthless, Doc. I said, yeah, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of Hollywood movies about medics and whatnot, there's kind of a target on their backs or an extra target on their backs. Is that kind of true? Very true because here's the, here's the thinking. In our war, if they could wound you, then they know the medic's going to have to come. If they can kill the medics, they know you can't save everybody else. They want to really seriously wound people, so then it takes three or four soldiers to carry a wounded person. It only takes two to carry a dead soldier. So they know that, that, that that's going to limit the fighting force. And so, yeah, there's a lot of times we had targets on our back, definitely. And that's why they, I would get to a guy, and as soon as I got to him, they'd start opening fire again. And wait, I was like, that, that guy was bait, you know, type of thing. And so, yeah, it was always very, very difficult. And then... Uh, Ambushes at night was always difficult. We'd have one starlight scope, which was the first war to have such a thing where you can see the green cast and the people better at night. And uh, th that was very effective as you're on your points. Even our base camp, we get attacked. Almost you could set your watch and get mortared at 9 o'clock at night if you were back in base camp for those three days. And then you had little sandbagged areas you'd dive into to try to protect you. If you had to run up to the berm, we had four 50 caliber set. And even though I was a medic, I had been an infantry 11 Bravo before I went into special forces, so I was able to I always ran the 50 caliber closest to my, my hooch with these little open air hooches. And so, um, yeah, it was quite a responsibility and, and, and one that it's a blessing and a curse to be a medic. It, it's a blessing if you can save someone. It's an absolute curse when you lose them because that's your friend. That's not just a person. Um, in law enforcement, you go to an accident scene. You don't know anybody most of the time. These are guys that talked about their wives, their cars, their motorcycles, their girlfriends. You, you, you may only been with someone for a few weeks. But you build a bond day and night when you're out there in the battlefield or back-to-back -back at ambush at nighttime. So it was really a more intense situation. When you lose somebody who you're close to, who you work with, uh, whether you be first responder or military, how did you find a way to deal with that? It was really, really hard. It was really, really hard. I don't know if I ever dealt with it as effectively as I wished I could have. I tried to put a brave face on and, and not cry in front of other people or get frustrated uh, I try to be strong for them because these still other guys need you. And so sometimes the, the I remember I was trained. This one doctor, this Greenberry doctor said, here's what I want you to think about. That's your buddy. When you see his leg blown or his arm blown off or you've got guts hanging out. He said, I want you to turn around, take a breath, turn right around and work on the mechanical aspect of what needs to be done. Are we going to stop the bleeding? Are we clearing an airway? What are we doing? Afterwards, it's all done. Then I want your adrenaline to kick in and all your emotions. He said, but I need you guys to be strong. I'll never forget, training is so critical, whether it's military or law enforcement. That's what you fall back on, isn't it? And that's that's what helped us through those times trying to do the job. But I don't. it's not normal. It's not a normal human thing to see these things happen. That's why we always kid about going back to the world, or you'd see a jet in the air with this jet stream, you say, oh, there's a freedom bird. I mean, that really, you're like I'm on an alien planet in a war. It was so different from a kid that grew up in Garden Grove in a nice area three miles from Disneyland to be all of a sudden thrust into these battles. It was just like, it's hard to describe. How do you adjust when you come back and the war's over? Well, that was the thing. We didn't have much of an adjustment. Um, when I got blown up, like I say, after three and a half months in the hospitals, they sent me home for a 30-day convalescent leave. Well, I lived in Santa Ana right next to Garden Grove, and then across the street was a nice young Santa Ana police officer, about 26. He had a couple little boys, like three and five. He'd play in the yard with them, and I'd hobble over there and talk with them and all that, and he had a police scanner, and he said, 
when you get out, why don't you consider joining the, the Santa Ana Police Department? I thought, well, that, that might be a good job. So sure enough, when I was back there, the last few months before I got out, they were doing something called Project Transition, and you could choose some trade or whatever to help training. Well, they had a police academy. I said, could I go to this academy? So the Goldsboro Police Department put on an academy, and it was North Carolina. I went through a complete academy before I came back. When I flew back to Santa Ana, I had only five days to test the, the written test, the physical agility, the oral interviews, the psychological, the physical, everything I did in one week. They had 312 people test for two positions, and I came in number one. And so it was really, really uh, tough because when I got out, I, w- I go right into it. They didn't even have an academy. I, came, I, came, I started the, the Santa Ana Police Department the 28th of August, 1970. And the, our academy didn't start till February 1st. So I went with training officers. And after a couple months, they, they could see I was capable and mature enough to handle it. They'd give it like a line street. So imagine Blackstone. You, you can go up and down the whole shift, but don't get off Blackstone. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then I went to the academy. Uh, you're with other guys. They, they had two academies. The Orange County Sheriff's Department had one at the, the sheriff's facility. They had a second one at the Golden State Campus. Well, if you were in the military, you would go to the, the one at the sheriff's department. But if you'd been in combat, they sent you to the one at Gold West to give you a little bit of a break because they have a kid. If they give you 10 push-ups at that one, you do five there and five at home. <laughs> That's what the guys claim. We did them all there. But anyway, it was uh, very difficult because, again, most of us had been veterans at that time. Mm-hmm. Out of 44 of my class, uh, 39 were veterans. What are the challenges going from military to cop? Military to cop, it's so different because it's a quasi-military. So I've all my life been taught to say sir or ma'am, and that's just part of how, how you are in the military. And I did that the same all the way up through both Fresno and uh, Santa Ana and Fresno Police Department. You, you have to learn... Not to be badge heavy, that you're of the law, not above the law. That that uh, there's a lot of bad things that they talk about police officers. Well, again, I started at the end of '70, and I didn't leave the entire area till 2011, and even worked a little bit after that. They teach you you are looking at the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. They want you to use the facts and the evidence, and do everything you can possible to help people. And if you're investigating, invest it correctly. I had a very, very strict department at Santa Ana. They had a very strong internal affairs. If you were to screw up and mess with you, uh, at Fresno, same thing. They had a huge, I mean, there's like six or eight sergeants, a lieutenant just in charge of internal affairs. Um, they'll terminate you if you do things wrong. So you have to learn that you've got to hold back. You have to judge things. You have to remember that some people may have had terrible experience with other police officers. So if they have a bad attitude to you, you're just going to have to kind of roll with it and be a duck. This one training officer said, you know, how water rolls off a duck's back. You just got to be a duck in this business. I imagine <clears throat> when you're overseas at war and you're dealing with civilians, it's very, it's a lot more heightened. There's a lot more danger involved. Um, is it hard to make that tr- transition with dealing civilians when you were a cop here back stateside? I'll give you an example. The civilians in combat, we would go into villages and imagine Viet Cong would come to a village and every boy that was from 10 to 20 years old, they're taken out of there. Uh, all the other ones above 20 are already gone anyway. So all that's left is young people and very old people. They would conscript them into the communist Viet Cong and tell the villagers, if these guys defect, we're going to come back and slaughter all you. They tell their boys, now that you're one of the Viet Cong, if you try to defect, we're going to come back and kill all your relatives. Well, then it was very, very difficult because they were afraid to talk to Americans. Well, we had a program called MedCap. Imagine I have my entire platoon surround a village, and for 8, 10, 12 hours, I would treat 40, 50, 60, 70 people in that village for every possible ailment they had. And I would have to carry, they would bring a box of like 4 by 4 full of supplies, and I'd go through that whole thing. 
I also, if the midwife wasn't available, I delivered 12 babies in Vietnam. And a boxy, boxy come quick. And you, you, know, you have to learn their mannerisms. Like I'm showing you my hand where my fingers are pointing towards you and I'm, I'm putting it down on my palm. Where Americans, we always take your hand and you come this way. Well, that's an insult to them. You have to do it this way. Mm. And you learn that when you go to the Papa son and you, you address him first before you cross the threshold, you don't talk to mom and son or the children. And you never pat the little child on top of the head because evil spirits could go talking to the child. So you have to respect their culture and learn their culture which we did all those Oliver Stone movies about people slaughtering people. I never once saw or experienced that in my unit. But when I would do these med caps and treat all these people and all these ailments that they would know who I was. I only had one baby that I had a problem with her umbilical cord was all wrapped around as she came out. I'm, it's all blue and cyanotic and I'm unwrapping it. And all of a sudden the baby goes, <gasps> and I went, <gasps> I don't think I've been breathing for about a minute. <laughs> so thank God it lived, but you're all by yourself. There's no team. There's no medical backup. You know, and it, it was always a challenge. Well, then you become a police officer and you're dealing with people that you can't just shoot if they're a bad guy. I mean, remember I told you at night from 6 till 10, you rested, but from 10 at night till 6 in the morning, it was all on battle. Here, you have to use your judgment. You have to be careful. You have to know shoot, don't shoot scenarios. It's so critical that when you're training and being trained, you adhere to those rules so you can do the job safely, correctly, and always fall back on your training, right? And that training is what takes the difference of war into police. But the PTSD combination of war and police is, is tough. I had terrible accidents. Drunk drivers kill people. You know, again, you couldn't save. I had a nine-month-old get burned to death. That was My granddaughter was nine months old at the time. I mean, those type of things were terrible. Um, one day I had a call right out of the chute. A guy was hanging himself in front of his 10-year-old daughter and 14-year-old son. We get there, and he's dead, and I get the chaplain there, and it's just a mess. And then my sergeant said, I want you to go get a cup of coffee for a half hour. I did. I get back in the car. Two boys are drowning up at Madeira River off the 41. I had to get out of my car. It was a 160-degree July day, and I'm running one side. They said, no, he's on the other side. I'm running the other side. No, he's up there. I went up the side of the freeway, commandeered a car to get me. We pulled the two boys out. We thought we saved the, the one, but he, he coded out by the time he hit the hospital and he died. And, and I thought, I went home that night. And I'll never forget my brother-in-law and sister-in-law from Orange County came up to stay with a couple of days. I was trying to say grace and I started to cry as I can't. I said, I could do nothing today. I couldn't save anyone. And I don't care who you are. It, it hurts. It hurts. And as a medic and a combat medic, um, I will be honest with you, my last year of law enforcement, every bloody case I got, every shooting, whatever, I was just my cup was full. I could hardly take any more of that at the end of my career. It was getting so bad mm. on the medical. And so these uh, nightmares and problems I've had all my life, I could get 20 and 40 minute increments of sleep because I, I keep thinking to these guys. It's just in my mind and it's as fresh as is yesterday. What was that turning point where you realized you maybe needed some help? A, a friend of mine had gone to uh, uh, Dr. Jana Price Sharp and said that he he said she would really help you. I said, I don't, I don't know. I said, I went to the VA one time and I went to the VA and they put me in a group of 28 guys. We're talking guys that done math and drugs and alcohol and heroin and just all a mess. Guess how many had been in combat of that 28? Me. One. They're just a bunch of guys that are using, I think, sometimes this crutch or excuse or problem because they've gotten into drugs or alcohol and problems and never even had experienced what we'd experienced. Yet I'm trying to buck it up and make it. So I left there. I said, no, no. You're going to put me in a group meeting like that. You might as well pull every tooth in my head without anesthesia. I won't do it again. So they put me with a lady that I had six sessions with. And the VA asked me uh, to do everything all over again. And it was really tough. 
Well, when you go to Jana and her theory and her tools and how she helps you, and she's not into a new drug, a new drug. No, she's into teaching us how do we go into those dreams and handle them? How do we think about things? How do we bring ourselves back to now and not keep thinking of the times that we've had the worst things in our life happen? Little by little by little, she's been helping me through that, extremely reducing the nightmares and things. I don't still have them because I do have some. But what a difference. And because of my friend saying, no, she helped me, I'll give it a try. Wow, what a difference she has made. One question I've been dying to ask you uh, before we even sat down to start this interview was, um, you know, a young guy like me only reads about the Vietnam War and, and the, the era and the controversy that was around it. What's it like to come back home and, and come back to a nation that where a lot of people just didn't appreciate what you guys did over there? You know, that that's a really good question. I appreciate you asking them because we had you returned to airports. I don't care if it was the San Francisco airport or the Atlanta airport. They were terrible people saying terrible things, you know, calling you filthy names and whatever. And I thought, you had no idea. I was a medic. I was there helping those people as well as our own troops. I bandaged up enemy troops that we had wounded, and yet they were treating us terrible. They never get, oh, we lost the war and we lost the war in Vietnam. I said, no. I said, I, I, would, I got given a chance to go to a couple of high schools. The first one was my daughter's, and then ironically, uh, a few years ago, my granddaughter's. Hmm. I said, I asked the classroom, how did, how did, what happened? Oh, we all lost the war. I said, are you aware that a Nobel Peace Prize was given to Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and his Vietnamese counterpart for getting the peace treaty? That 23 months later, April 30th, 1975, after we had left, the country fell because we weren't there and there wasn't the desire to go back in and honor the treaty. We said we would do it. We militarily did not have a loss of a war as it's being portrayed, as I say, by the Oliver Stones of the world's. Every single major battle we did and every single major operation we did, these soldiers did the best they could. This crap about cutting off ears, a string of ears, and throwing people out of choppers and all that, all these urban fairy tales are so insultive. So I tried to educate the classes with one soldier's perspective of who was there and what my fellow men would do and what we were talking about and how we reacted. You're even given this little nine rules card of how to treat the locals and respect all that i would still have those and i take them to the classroom and i say this is what we were taught and this is what our honor code went and i said if somebody screwed up and there was a guy that went to lbj long been jail because he went and bought some heroin well boom they pulled him out and they stuck him in jail so when i asked people how did the war win did we really lose the war or did we not go back in and do it it's kind of like what obama did with iraq here we it did fine. We left a quick reactionary force that he pulled out. So then it started to have a problem. So then they had to go back in and thank God to Petraeus and all the things in the surge and all the things he did. They were able to stabilize it again. I've been in, been in Iraq talking to the people saying how bad Hussein was and how in the middle of the night he'd take away people as henchmen would and you'd never see him again and the women all get to vote now and they'd have their purple thumb proud of it. I, I still feel what we did in Vietnam was right and correct and the best we could. The political times were what they were. And so it was so offensive as a soldier. Even the World War II soldiers would look at us like, gee, you know, what'd you guys do, you know? And yet, if you take the amount of battles, think what I mentioned to you earlier, three to five air assaults in a day, five, five uh, uh, ambush at night, you're out in the field for three weeks, you go back to base camp to rest, recuperate, and get your gear and clean up your stuff. For three days, you go back out again. If you read about World War II and how they prepare for weeks and weeks for battles and then take over an area, in Patton's own book, he said, you don't take real estate with soldiers' bloods twice. You hold it. 
we would go back to the same location of fighting three weeks later, five weeks later. They're encamped more again. They know which way we're going to come in. We're fighting again. What a stupid way of fighting battles. But that's what we did. We did the best we could. Now, remember, I come from a guerrilla warfare training in special forces to a straight leg, not even airborne infantry unit attached to them. And they're almost like redcoats walking online. It's just like, oh, my God, what a difference in war. But every soldier that I encountered did the very best they could. I had one coward captain in the in and he fled and my friend the artillery officer tom rodriguez had to take over during the battle and keep leading us but other than that um i i still feel what we did was correct when you saw the villages where they would kill the mayors they would kill the teachers they would even kill the postmasters anybody that's responsible we're talking terrible things where they would gut people and let them bleed to death and gut them out when you see that kind of terrorism and, and you're being told oh what you're doing is wrong they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't seen it themselves. They haven't experienced talking to these villagers about how terrible life is. They haven't seen that in Iraq, and they haven't seen it in Afghanistan. Here we are today still in two theaters of battle. People still are not in touch, are they? History has a way of repeating itself. We've seen that many times. Uh, in today's current society, there's a lot of political groups who are very... Um, for lack of a better term, anti-law enforcement due to some things that have happened in the past couple of years. Um, as a person who's experienced the Vietnam War and come back to a society that's not very thankful for your service, what, or for the groups who aren't very thankful to your service, what do you have to say to society nowadays? I, I try to say, could you look at both sides? I don't think we have the ability with all the acrimony going on anymore. I hate you, they say, because I don't. you don't believe the way I do. Or if you don't believe I do the way I am, you're racist, uh, homophobic, misogynistic, uh, Islamophobic. I mean, all these names. People cannot sit down and discuss differences anymore intelligently. Have an opportunity to say, well, you talk about issues, but how knowledgeable are you? Or are you just giving sound bites back? If you talk to someone like me, a soldier who's been in that situation, you might actually value what we've experienced by having the dialogue. And it's that lack of current courtesy, the rudeness, and lack of dialogue that we're suffering as a nation because here we, th we still have the greatest nation. You leave this nation, you come back here, you almost want to kiss the ground that we walk on. We are so blessed to live in this freedom. Yet some of them don't appreciate the freedoms or they are disrespectful because there's only one thought process. No, there's many thought processes. And we, we just need to step back a little bit i can very very much uh, have a discussion with someone complete opposite of my beliefs but if they'll just do it maturely and and and, and in a civil manner we could accomplish probably a lot more and, and like each other a lot better hmm. brian as a man of much wisdom and and you've seen so much um what's your advice to someone going through struggling with ptsd right now you know that's such a good question because Sometimes you don't even realize it. You're just thinking, ah, God, life sucks. <laughs> or I'm hyper all the time, or my wife tells me to calm down, or you almost feel like a road rager, and you have to really, <coughs> excuse me, take control of yourself. I tell them you need to take a step back yourself and say, what's causing? What's the root? And we need to get at that root. By talking to qualified people like Dr. Janet Price-Sharps and others that can bring you into a more of a reality of what is today. When I went to Vietnam, I mean, I know that Jana said I want you to look at your watch. When you're out there in that jungle and you're seeing this war and you're going through that experience in your mind, look back at your watch. That watch is from today, this era. Focus on now. Bring it back now to where we are. I tell the guys, you kind of need to do the same thing yourselves as what she's teaching us in that 
we just have to realize that, yeah, we have these problems. There are emotional scars that probably aren't going to leave us. But how we handle those are up to us. And if they don't take that first initial step and really reflect on why they're having the problem, what's the root of that problem, they're not going to solve it. And drinking and drugs and are never going to, it's just a temporary solution to a long-term problem, kind of like suicide, a temporary solution to a long-term problem. That if they got over, they wouldn't commit suicide. So I tell people, you really got to say, aren't, let, let's count the blessings that we have. My God, I'm glad. I thank God every morning when I get up for the great day and the op- blessings and the opportunity we have. And some days I feel miserably and I feel, feel miserably and other days I succeed. <laughs> but definitely if they could just start to realize their family means everything to them and they mean everything to their families and their loved ones. And that can maybe help them open up their minds to say, yeah, I probably could value just as other veterans have value like myself from going to someone who's dealt with so many people, has so much experience, has so many different ways of giving you thought processes to work through it. Think of mental tools. I now have a little toolkit I get to work with that I didn't have before, did I? Brian, thank you so so much for coming on the show. I My really honor. appreciate it, sir. Thank My you. Honor. Thank you, sir. The great, the powerful Dr. Janet Price Sharps. <laughs> Once again, here we <laughs> are. Um, so Brian, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording and, uh, he, he's quite the story. He's seen so many traumatic things and in so many different levels. And if he can survive PTSD in a war, then I think pretty much anybody can. I agree. So Brian was a combat medic and, um, right when he was telling me all the stories, I kind of thought right off the bat, seeing, having to give someone medical aid in, in any capacity, um, and possibly seeing someone pass away, you know, in your hands. Um, does that take a, a different toll when it comes to traumatic incidents? I believe it does because I call him Doc. Uh, you know, when when you have people relying on you and, you know, you can do everything right and you still lose them. And so I think that... When you're placed in a position where your job is to help save people, and this is true with all first responders and all veterans, when they're placed in positions where their job is to save, and for whatever reason that person, it's their time to go, and they go, so often they go into woulda, shoulda, coulda. If I'd only, maybe I could have, and... And if they don't correct that right away, those become very, almost like huge wounds for that first responder. And I see this with medical personnel. Uh, I've seen this with ER doctors. I've seen this with nurses, EMTs, fire, you know, law enforcement, and certainly vets. But medics, I think it's very difficult because you're under high stress. Um, and particularly like with Doc's um, uh, particular story, he was in Vietnam with people shooting at him while he's trying to save lives. So he's having to both be a combat vet and or a combat um, personnel. He was a Green Beret on top of being a medic. So, you know, literally you put the gun on somebody's chest while you're trying to give aid to them and then you have to pick up the gun again. I mean, what a mind-blowing experience that just causes incredible damage. Brian or uh, Doc, um, 
he talks about how he was blown up, how he was shot at, how he had to shoot people, and he had to save, try to save and save many lives. Um, he also talks about coming back and being a police officer and having a bad day and, and just kind of breaking down in, in front of his family and just kind of feeling like he just couldn't do anything. What happens when you go from tragedy to tragedy to tragedy, and how do you get yourself out of that mental state? That's a great question. I think that, you know, Doc particularly is a person of very strong faith, and that probably carried him through a lot. He has a very, very strong marriage, which I think also really he had the family support that is so very important that some of our folks don't have. Um, <clears throat> I think that he also... Even when he was a police officer, he was, you know, doing things like selling real estate. So he had other things that would take his mind other places besides just trauma. Uh, so I think those were all saving graces. Um, but I think that uh, the wounds were very deep. And, in, you know, when guys came home from Vietnam, they're over there trying to defend our country. And they came home to people spitting on them, you know, so... It wasn't like it is today, you know, where we have things in the airport saying thank you to our veterans, that kind of thing. There was none of that. It was, you guys are all bad and you're terrible and that kind of thing. And so to go through all of that trauma and then have your own country turn its back on you, I think that was as big a wound as some of the things that he actually saw over in Vietnam. Me and Doc talked about what you just mentioned, him coming back into a, a very hectic political climate um, after the war. And uh, we kind of made the comparison of, of it being a hectic political climate today with law enforcement. Yes. Um, what kind of added toll does that add on somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder? Oh, my gosh. You know, it. it is devastating. It just truly is devastating because then people start to go, okay, my family lived without me. My kids lived without me. My wife lived without me, her husband. <clears throat> and then I put my life in danger. I almost died. And for what? I have all these people that say they want me to go do this, and then I go do this, and now they're mad at me for doing this. And they begin to feel like they can't do anything right. And so then, in Doc's case, so... You go over there, you do the best you can. He was deployed so much in, sh in such a short amount of time. And he, so, and then he has the losses of, of people that, you know, were so blown up that he, he couldn't, there was nothing he could do. And then he has the losses of people that just died that, you know, that he knew. And then he comes back and then he has the loss of the support of his country. Um, so I don't know, but I would imagine he kind of felt like he didn't have anyone. Hmm. You know, uh, thank goodness he had strong family life because he would have had a lot harder walk. Um, Doc, so he actually waited a while to get help and, and mm -hmm. went many years without sleep pretty much. Yeah. What's the... What's the importance of catching it early, and and did it affect him be, uh, more or less because he waited so long to get help? Well, I think it affects quality of life. You know, he's had an amazing life. He's such an amazing man. But, you know, the sad thing is, 
especially at that time, it really was not acceptable really to reach out and get psychological help. And so then you end up with all these guys that, you know, have gone through their whole life with all these terrible, terrible symptoms and not sleeping and, and all this, the backlash that comes with that, you know, and, and the brain is just like any other part of the body. You know, if you keep running in the broken knee, it's going to get more broke, (laughs) you know? And so, you know, and as I always say, if you're not getting sleep, then the PTSD gets even worse and it just builds on itself. And then, of course, in his case, which is often the case, he went into law enforcement. So now you have somebody who's getting more daily trauma and not sleeping and you already have that trauma uh, from the war. And and so it just it just compounds and it's really like running a marathon on a broken knee. Is it? From my understanding, Doc was was pretty late in life when he got help. Do you get to a certain point where it's too late to get help? Never. I just don't believe that. I have seen many people over the years heal, and there's always hope. Um, I think that, you know, again, you need to pick somebody who understands PTSD and can help you walk through it. And, um, and if you can't find somebody right away, for goodness sakes, figure out how to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, sleep's such an important thing, and I know every episode we're talking about sleep, 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 but um, I just it seems like that's the foundation for success in getting it through is. your journey of PTSD, right? And one of the reasons for that is if you don't have REM sleep, your your brain can't heal. And so, you know, if you have to exercise, if you have to meditate, if you have to, you know, a lot of people will go even to church and pray, you know, and and really, sleep is a function of calming your system down. Hmm. You've got to calm your system down. Um, I was really, really shocked to find out that Doc actually re-enlisted and was part of uh, the Iraq War as well. <laughs> yes. uh, I really was just kind of speechless for a moment. I, I couldn't believe it after being in Vietnam and, and being the age he was and, and going back to war. What is it? What is it about these guys that they just can't put it down? And how do you get past that if you feel you just can't put it down? That's a good question. In fact, I was just talking to a veteran today about that. Um, One of the things that happens, well, I guess there's a couple things. I think in Doc's case, he is very much um, a servant. You know, he has served his community, he has served his country his entire life. And which to me is just so incredible and so amazing that somebody is willing to do that. Uh, So I think you get people that are very drawn to, um, to serving. You know, and so there's that. And I think that was definitely a a driving force with Doc. And I think at the time he saw a need um, because he had very specialized training and, you know, there wasn't a lot of people available for the kind of specialized training he had. So I think that's one thing, but I think the other thing is, and I'm not sure, I don't think it was so much his case, but I've seen other guys go and reenlist, uh, in part because when they slowed down, their mind tried to catch up with all the crap they saw, you know, and I tell guys, it's kind of like, 
you get your brain got behind on the filing. And so when you sit still and now it's pulling out all these things and saying, is this still going on? Is this still a problem? What are we doing about this? And it becomes very overwhelming when your brain starts dealing with all the stuff that maybe you've been doing for 10 years nonstop. And so one of the things that kind of shuts that down a little bit is adrenaline. And so then they go back out and they get exhausted again, but they're so adrenalized that they're, you know, and they're not sleeping a whole lot, but they're going, 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 going. And so the flood of memories stops for momentarily. Um, and so I think that's the other reason. So I, I guess I would encourage people to really consider why you're re-enlisting or why you're going back to another job. Um, <clears throat> and that it is okay to retire, you know, and to enjoy life. But it's also, you know, I am very much a believer in serving our communities, you know, and so I, I get that servant mentality, you know, but I think it needs to be balanced. Lastly, uh, Brian talks about how he just recently go back, went back to Vietnam with uh, one of his buddies from the war and, and a couple other guys, and uh, they, they buried the hatchet. And uh, what's the important to getting closure in your PTSD journey? That's an awesome question. I These guys are so amazing. And, you know, I think that they still had a lot of mental open wounds from that war. And I think their journey back together as a group um, and to be able to symbolically lay it to rest. You know, our, our limbic system is very uh, attuned to symbology. And that's probably why we have weddings and bar mitzvahs and, <laughs> and all of that communion, because our brain really does seek those uh, symbolic moments. And so because they're very meaningful to us. And so I think by going back and literally burying a hatchet, which is, uh, you know, a common saying that we have in the U.S., uh, by going back and visibly doing that, it's like telling the mind, you can let go now. It's over. And I think it was amazing because the people in Vietnam were so nice to them. And things had changed so dramatically, and they were welcomed, and people were, you know, very accepting of them. And I think that in and of itself was incredibly healing. And to be able to go back to uh, one of the places where they had the biggest battle that they had gone through, and to see it just covered with beautiful grass, you know, it was just a beautiful field, and you know, there's no explosions, there's no bombs, there's no shooting, there's nothing but just beautiful grass. And and to be able for the mind, to, it's almost like you're updating the software, you know, saying that no longer exists. That's long gone. And what's here now is just beautiful grass. And and so I think it was it was just an amazing adventure. And I'm really proud of them for doing it. And I think it probably brought them both a lot of, or all of them, a lot of peace. Dr. Janet Price-Sharps, thank you so much. Oh, my privilege. Thank you. And stick around for after the show. You get a little extra from uh, Dr. Janet Price-Sharps and I. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify by searching Whole PTSD. And remember to subscribe on social media at PTSD underscore Whole.
Uh, here's the extra for this episode of the podcast, something we're trying out. Uh, Dr. Janet Price Sharps, Brian talks about being um, from a family of servants. Uh, both of his parents were in the Salvation Army Corps, and uh, his dad was a World War II veteran. Um, my family, myself, I come from a, a long lineage of, of uh, veterans and, and fire service people. What is it about being a first responder and military person that keeps it a family business? Well, I think that first responders and, and veterans pass on that belief that it's all of our duty to uh, serve. You know, if I, I was absolutely raised that you give back to your community, which is why I run a nonprofit. And um, I'm very involved in a lot of community activities with my nonprofit. I, I truly believe in that servant model. And my dad was a vet. My brother was in the military. Uh, my godfather was in the military. Um, so I, I think when you come from that and you're told, look, it's your responsibility. This is your country. And it is your responsibility to take care of it in whatever capacity you can do that. Whether you're a medical doctor, whether you're a teacher, whether whatever it is you're doing, you should always be giving back to the community you live in to make it a better place. And, you know, one of the things that I, I tell my students, if everybody in your community gave two to five hours a week back to the community, what an amazing community we would have rather than people just taking, giving back, kind of like what JFK said all those years ago, right? So I think that that is training that has um, been passed on, you know, to the kids of first responders, which, like you said, is very common. You see, you know, people that came from parents or grandparents or first responders. It just continues down the line.